Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilkes, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Today, Father Stephen, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite church fathers, John of Damascus, or John Damascene. Damascene's not his last name, right? This is where he's from. Uh, and is he from, He this means, right, he's from the Damascus in Syria, right? He's from, yes, Damascus. He's from Damascus. It's just uh, the way of saying Damascus, Damascene. That's great because it's so it's it's such a rare uh, and wonderful thing when the you know city that's there today was the one that is referred to in his name is the one that uh, you know Paul was on en route to uh, you know it's nice when <laughs> when there's nothing more complicated than that. Uh, it's also often claimed to be the oldest uh, continually inhabited city. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So it's been there a while. Um, so so again he's 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 this he's a great theologian um he's super influential uh and uh we're we're going to get into precisely uh how but is he more of a is is he more of on the you know in Damascus one would think he is he more of an eastern father or a western father where's his e- influence kind of spread more or has it been preserved by the eastern church or the western church Actually, by both. Uh, what's interesting, both in his own time and later times, uh, he's been influential. But in the East and the West, he wrote a book on the Orthodox faith. It's the title of it, An Exact Expl- Exposition of the Orthodox Faith, which became for centuries one of the key... Pl- th- it was translated into Latin and was one of the key entryways into Greek theology for Westerners. Okay. So he played a really, a lot of Western uh, theologians, what they knew fundamentally about the Eastern Fathers was through John Damascene, sort of summarized it for them. Okay. We'll get, let's he get... He was a very late father. Yeah, he came from the, uh, he's the last of the great the Greek Church Fathers. Died in the mid-8th century, 700s, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, let's, I was about to say, let's get into his, his biography a little bit. So, so when does, when is he born? Well, he's born in the middle of the 7th century, about 650. Uh, it might have been as late as 675, but somewhere there, and you know, right after after the mid uh, mid eighth uh, mid eighth uh, century or seventh century, rather, he came from a Christian family, a really Christian family, but they were very involved in government. But in 634, 16 years before he was born, at earliest, uh, Damascus fell to the Muslims. The great Muslim invasion took place, and Damascus fell for fell into Muslim hands. And so his father was named Sergius, was a very high functionary for the Muslims. You see what the Muslims did, uh, typically like the Romans, like it did in, in, in uh, the Holy Land, is they would basically use local government to work through it. So he was in charge of basically raising taxes for Christians and things, sort of taking care of financial matters for Christians who lived in Damascus, which is the biggest community there at the time. So so his, so he, his father serves under this new Muslim regime, right? And, right. And and that's the family he comes from. So he's he's right. born into born into essentially M- Muslim rule. Uh that's yes. that's that's really interesting. Uh, the first church father who's kind of 
not under the Roman Empire. He's from, from under a different, uh, a different uh, uh, civilization, essentially. <laughs> right. Exactly right. And so his son, John, actually secedes him. When he dies, his son takes over his post. But he has to leave his post in 717 because at first they wanted very my you know, when the Muslims first came in, Damascus is a very important city, and they didn't want to irritate things, so they really minimized how much they got into regular government there. But we have basically um, a new caliph, those are the head of the Muslims, it's called a caliph. Um, he actually tightens up the policy. He starts really pushing more for Islam, and John didn't want to have anything to do with that as things got tighter, so he actually decided to leave and follow a monastic career. He went to St. Saba's Monastery. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, if you go to Bethlehem, that monastery you see on the right-hand side as you're going out towards Bethlehem, that out there is St. Saba's Monastery. It's in the Kedron Valley there between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Okay. And he became a very important theologian. And he died there uh, either in 750 or 754. One of those two years. Okay. He was probably about 100 years old when he died. He's very old. Wow. Okay. Wow. So he he lives a long time, grows up in Muslim, uh, Muslim Damascus, leaves for this monastery in, uh, in, in Palestine and, and pretty much stays there. So yes, but, dies okay. there. Yeah. I mean, this guy was not a, a gadabout. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he grows up in his home, works in his hometown until he loses the job, basically, uh, leaves his job and then he goes somewhere else and then dies there for a hundred years. Having two homes is pretty good. Okay. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is monastics are, they're, they're townies really. They, they stick around. <laughs> well, not originally in our episode yeah. on monastics, there were some who were called, uh, Girovags, you know, they actually were sort of wandering and they got a very justly deserved bad reputation. <laughs> a bit of a nuisance, but that's not John. Um, no. So let's talk about um, let's talk about his theological work. And, and as always, um, usually when church fathers are writing theology, they're almost always responding to something that's happening in the world. So what's what's going on that sort of kicks off the, the theological works that we remember John for? Well, ironically, uh, what happens is that um, the Muslim invasion brings to the fore a big Christian issue that had arisen independently. You see, what had happened in the uh, century before the Muslims came is increasingly icons became more and more used in worship in the Eastern Church. They really became more and more popular. Now, we know that uh, Jews were really allergic to uh, religious images. They take images of historical scenes and things. And Muslims were dramatically opposed to religious images. And so this gave, frankly, a new incentive to people who opposed what was happening with icons. And these are called the iconoclasts, literally the icon breakers. And they say, we need to get rid of the icons. You know, we need to purify the faith of these, all these, these pictures. So the crisis starts out a guy called Leo III, and he founded a new dynasty. He came from Syria. That shouldn't be a surprise for us. He came from Syria, and so he was more inclined to be sympathetic with the Semitic ways, which were not with images. That was more a Greek thing. Hmm. So he comes, and he issues an edict against the icons. In, you know, so basically, 726, he, um, and actually they tear down the icon over, this, over the city gate in Constantinople. And then he's succeeded by Constantine V, who really had a huge persecution. People who would not get with the program were persecuted. So if you're worshiping with a with an icon, you're 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 in some serious trouble. Oh yeah. People who painted icons could have their hands cut off, things like that. Um, 
There was temporary relief because the Empress Irene, when Constantine V dies, the Empress Irene supports icons. And she lives to 802. So what happens is, during her time, they call the Seventh Ecumenical Council to put an end to this. And so they actually support the use of icons. What we're going to find out is, it was the work of John Damascene which made this possible. He was the one who created a, a theological infrastructure to support icons. Then there was briefly, after she's gone, we have a less rigorous attempt to go back to iconoclasm under Leo V. But finally, Theodora comes in and it's all over. She supports icons and reestablishes their youth everywhere. And matter of fact, they have a feast to celebrate this in the Orthodox Church. The first Sunday of Lent is called the Feast of Orthodoxy. <laughs> the <laughs> okay. Feast of the Restoration of the Icons. So I that see. was the background for, so basically the, the theological work that underlay the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which is the Second Council of Nicaea, was done, among other things, that's by uh, John Damascene. Okay, so, so John lends his voice to this controversy in much the same way as previous fathers lent their voice to other ecclesiastical controversies. So what does he write? Well, he writes three treatises. But he, the specific positions he takes is, first of all, what are the arguments against, against images? You know, in the Bible, as we mentioned in another uh, podcast, uh, we make a distinction. There are two different words that we separate between idol and icon. They both can be translated as images. And in Greek, we have idolon and icon. Icon means an image. Idolon means, also means image. But there's a difference. And the Hebrew, I'll spare you, the Hebrew has the same distinction. And so the church fathers have believed, you know, the reason that, uh, that a Jew would tell you why you couldn't make a picture of God was because no one's seen God. God's a spirit. So it's inherently a lie. It's a lie. But the point, the first point of John Damascene was, wait a second, in the incarnation of Christ, God has become visible. That's the whole point of the incarnation. Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So his point is that an image of Christ not the image of the Father as such, but the image of Christ is valid because Christ was really something we authentically saw and he was truly God and man inseparably. So his argument was the incarnation made true images possible. Anything before the incarnation of Christ would have been an idol, an idol because it would have been a false image. But now with Christ, an image of Christ is a true image because God did take on the appearance of a mortal being, of a human man and therefore it would no longer be a false image, but a true image. Some people were saying, well, that might be nice as to justify why we draw a picture, but what about their use in worship? And he made a big difference between proskinesis, which in Greek literally means prostrating, but it has the idea of reverence or veneration, like when you salute a flag, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As opposed to latria, which is Greek for worship, you know, adoring. And he's saying, well, just as, you know, you, you, would, treat, treat, uh, uh, you would treat something like a flag respectfully, we would say, you know, you wouldn't be disrespectful but you're not worshiping a flag, you know, you know there's a difference, is he's saying we only reverence or venerate, we just show decent respect, we treat them decently when it comes to icons. Only God is worshipped. 
And even when we honor, we're not honoring the, the piece of cloth in the flag, to use my analogy. We're honoring what it stands for, the country. When people honor, they're not honoring paint and, you know, paint on wood. They're honoring what it represents. So his point is we only worship God, and all we do is show honor, respect towards an icon because of whom it represents. And so the idea is that the, the icon points to the thing right. it, it represents, and that's, that's who you're... That's who you're honoring, not not the picture itself. Right. And then 30 said they can be very useful in our spiritual life. I love a wonderful quote from him. He says, look, his experience. When I do not have any books or when my thoughts torture me, preventing me from enjoying my reading, I go to the church and the freshness of the paintings attracts my gaze and imperceptibly it carries my soul in praise to God. It's sort of like this. You know, I used to be a road warrior in my regular work. You know, I traveled a lot. And I've got to tell you, I had a picture of my family. And sometimes I doubt I just take out a look at my picture and just remind me of them. I didn't think they were, were there somehow, but it was just a, a helpful reminder. Got blue, take out a picture, look at the kids, look at my wife and say, yeah, this is good. So he's saying it could have that effect on us. Okay, okay, I see. So he helps, he helps that second Nicene count. He kind of gives the theological ballast for that council to make the, the judgments that it does. Right. They had to come up with a good explanation of why, why do we do this since it's being questioned mm -hmm. again. And he said, this is why we do it, because unlike anyone else, we, unlike Muslims, for example, unlike Jews who have not accepted the Lord Jesus, we accept that God became incarnate, that we have right. seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. To him, an icon of Christ was a testimonial to our belief that the God became incarnate. <laughs> mm. So it kind of changes our changes the idea of the of the the the, the process of of using an image or painting an image. That's that's kind of what God did with Christ at all. So it kind of blesses the blesses the art in a way. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the other works that he produced um you know i i know that he 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 gave the defensive images for sure but he also did some pretty serious kind of systematic theological work let's talk about that well one he wrote a book called the fountain of knowledge most of our our listeners even pretty well informed ones probably don't recognize that title because it was a three-part work and the third part which was called on the orthodox faith literally an exact exposition is, is really widely known so what mm -hmm. happened is this fountain of knowledge was meant to be a summa, what we call in Latin a summa, meaning a synthesis. That's what summa means. It means summary, but it means synth uh, like a height, but it means it's synthesis, putting it all together, You're working all, all the... Yes. It was basically a systematic theology. It was so good that Thomas Aquinas used it as the basis for his work when he wrote the uh, Summa Theologiae. Okay. And it was a key source for information about Eastern theology in the West. After he wrote this, Western theologians who wanted to know, what did they think in the East? This is the book they went to. Now, it has three parts. The first one is really technical. Because when you're going to talk about how do you do theology, he had to explain. We call it dialectic. It's like when we talk about scripture, human hermeneutics. How do we interpret scripture? Well, he basically says, how do we do theology? So he writes the first part uh, is a dialectic. You know, how do we lay out arguments in theology? Then part two is interesting for historians. It's a list of 118 heresies. Hmm. Don't, wow. don't let this happen to you. Sort of reminds us of, <laughs> of Irenaeus, right? His against all heresies. Right. There's a few more that have, that have come up, it seems. Well, specifically in his case, 
Well, actually, not that many more because, frankly, most heresies have a pretty good shelf life. You know, they just keep recycling. Okay. They're like a virus. They never really go away. But um, in this case, the last heresy he mentions is Islam. He, this is our first actual Christian refutation of the claims of Islam. Oh, wow. wow. And the third part, the part everyone reads, the actual title is an exact exposition or an accurate exposition of the Orthodox faith. Most people call it on the Orthodox faith. It's a systematic summary of what Orthodox Christians believe. And that, again, had a, is not only hugely in the East, but it had a huge effect in the West. Because if you need to know something, put it all together. You can't read all the fathers directly. You want to just say, well, give me the summary. Give me the yeah. executive summary. Yeah. This is it, the exposition of the Orthodox faith. Okay. So he doesn't just go around refuting heresies. He's also gives the positive statement. Uh, this is this is what we oh, believe. Yeah. This is what we affirm. And what I love, it's yeah. very synthetic. Again, so he really says, he puts it all together. He says, here's where we are. Here's how it all weaves together. And he's he's also, he he's obviously, he's drawing on the tradition of the past fathers. Oh, yes, right? yes. Like, yeah, yeah. With orthodoxy, he's saying, this is what we believe. But I'm, what, what I'm doing, what's new with me is I'm doing it as a synthesis. I'm taking all of this and sort of systematizing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's actually one of my favorite things about him is that I remember uh, in some of my studies reading a uh, reading a write up on him. I think in an encyclopedia, and they they pointed out that he, with the exception of the defensive images, he wasn't a, he didn't he he wasn't a, a particularly original uh, writer. Uh, he wasn't trying to be. He was trying to take the the best of the tradition um, and and synthesize it and. Uh, summarize and put it together in a in a package that you could read and then pass it on to the next generation like a um so that that that's definitely one of my favorite things about him well yeah i like to say that orthodoxy is about plagiarism is i would like to think as a priest that i've never had a new idea in the sense that (laughs) (laughs) that all of it is supporting the faith of the church you know novelty for example i'm a cpa and believe me, a creative accountant is not a term that you covet getting that name. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's quite serious. He was very happy to simply put into a more useful form, a more practical form, accessible form, the teachings of the fathers. Ironically, right. we in modern times tend to go back and like theologians by the degree to which they created, they added something to a new perspective. And that's, I'm teasing, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But they were very proud of being thoroughly rooted in the past. And what he did is made the past accessible. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I, th- I think I love that, especially because I think that's actually kind of what inspires us to do what we do here, yes. Father Stephen, <laughs> was, is, uh, uh, you know, passing on the, the tradition, you know, over the airwaves, I guess. Um, or, and uh, yeah, I, I guess that that's also if there was, yeah. if there was any, any group of people that, that did, did what we do, I, I was always, I would always be tempted to call them Damascenes. Uh, that's right. Cause, cause, cause John, John kind of went went that way before us. Yeah, we're in good company. By the way, Ambrose was the same way. A lot of people, you look back, we think he's a great church father, but in a lot of modern theology, they say, well, he didn't really do anything new. I mean, he just beautifully presented this, and I think that's a beautiful contribution. <laughs> he yeah, converted I, I Augustine really <laughs> by presenting him with the <laughs> yeah. faith in a way that he found extremely appealing. Right, right. Well, that's 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 probably my favorite thing about, about John of Damascus. But... Um, what did he leave us anything else any other writing yeah in the greek tradition remember in the ancient greeks and romans loved rhetoric 
they really thought that this is the one is is the 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 apex of you know of of excellence and he was an excellent preacher and wrote fabulous hymns he is actually known as chris Oroas. remember we had chris we've had a chrysostom meaning golden-tongued mm-hmm. chris Oroas means streaming with gold oh, it's wow. like when he spoke gold came out but he's especially known for his hymns and actually, for people who are old-time Episcopalians, if you're my generation, you know, if you're my age and things, you'd probably remember that at Easter, we actually had three famous hymns that actually are direct translations of hymns written by John Damascene. The first is called, really? Thou Hast Chosen Morn of Praise. The second is, Come Ye Faithful, Raise the Strain. And the third is, The Day of Resurrection. These were greatest hits for people who were raised in another generation. <laughs> they were very, very well-known hymns, and they would be sh- shocked to find out that those words were written by none other than the streaming with gold, John Damasey. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. Anything else you have for us on John of Damascus? No, I think it's very important that he really represents the close of the patristic age in the East. You know, some people try to push it farther, but really he's where, that he's the line for almost everyone. We say that, you know, these are great men after him, great, great theologians after, but these are unique case. You know, they really represent a very special way. So he's really the, the latest of the universally recognized church fathers in the East. I should say quite universally. Some people have some reservations, but he's very, very widely recognized. Thanks so much, Father Stephen, and thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.